Hello, and welcome to Legally Bond, a podcast presented by the law firm Bond, Shenneken King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf-Price. On today's episode, we are speaking with experienced college sports attorney, Mike Sheridan. Mike works out of Bond's Overland Park, Kansas office and joined the firm in 2020. Thanks for joining the podcast today, Mike. Of course. Thanks for having me. Um, It's good to get a chance to chat. So you joined Bond last year. Can you tell us a bit about your career and background prior to joining Bond? Sure. So I'm from the Kansas City area and went to school there and started my career there actually as a public defender and criminal defense attorney. I was in that line of work for about three and a half years, and it was a great experience. Being a public defender, they kind of drop you in the deep end so to speak. That is true. Uh, Yeah. And primarily did felony casework in Northeast Kansas and got some good experience in the courtroom, learning how to communicate with clients, managing uh, a heavy caseload. So really from day one of that job, I was able to do what I felt was meaningful work and really enjoyed it, learned a lot, made a lot of good friends, took some lumps along the way. You would expect, you know, a green lawyer to take. So after a few years of that, I I realized that uh, as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't think it was something I wanted to do long term and had always had a kind of in the back of my head, a thought of working in college sports. I think that's pretty common, you know, for law students to have those kind of uh, other areas of interest in college sports was mine. And um, unfortunately, hadn't really done anything about it up to that point. So I had to kind of start from scratch uh, to get into college sports. So luckily, I was able to convince the head of compliance at a nearby university in in Kansas City to take me on and let me help out in her shop on a part-time basis. And I did that for a little over a year and um, learned kind of the fundamentals of NCA compliance. The rule book is close to 400 pages for the Division I manual. So there's a lot to learn, obviously. Wow, yeah. And um, did that for... I said a little over a year and went to a uh, an NCA regional rules conference in Indianapolis and met someone who had an opening at a school out east and was able to convince her to take me on and just kind of continue to build from there. I was at that institution for about two years doing kind of basic entry level compliance work and then was fortunate enough to move on to the NCA national office and work in the enforcement division where I spent about eight and a half years doing major infractions cases. So. That's my my background in a nutshell. It was a little unorthodox, I guess, uh, going from criminal defense to college sports, but uh, it worked out in the end. Well, you know, we always tell law students that the skills are all transferable, so it's nice of kind of you to uh, to be an illustration of that for them. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm a real world real world example. Of that yeah, exactly. Uh, so college sports attorney. So I worked at a, a law school for a dozen or so years before um, I joined Bond last year. And I know there are a lot of people who want to know more. Um, so what does a college sports attorney in private practice do? Man, there's a wide variety of things you can do. Our work in the college sports practice group in Overland Park really focuses on representing the NCA member schools and assisting them with NCA compliance, eligibility, and enforcement matters. So that's just one aspect of this line of work. So on an average day for us, our office is doing investigative interviews. Uh, We are writing reports. We're consulting with the NCA staff, really trying to assist the institution from the point in time where they learn of an NCA compliance issue until 
if there is an issue actually uh, uncovered, you know, until the, the disposition of the case, as it were. There's a lot of details that obviously I'm skipping over in that process, but really it's, it's kind of a, an advisor along the way, if you will, throughout each phase of the uh, investigative process. But like I said, there are, there are other areas of, of college sports administration that attorneys and practitioners will, will assist folks with. It seems like it could start with everything from recruiting to graduation and everything in between for the athletes. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we primarily, like I said, represent the schools, but there are student athletes who oftentimes need uh, assistance or representation in an infractions or an eligibility matter. Uh, other individuals like coaches or administrators might as well. That's not really where, where uh, we focus our efforts in Overland Park, but there are certainly those opportunities out there for others. That's great. I, um, the internal investigation work I did was with financial institutions, but it's very interesting to get inside and learn about your clients and um, how things operate. And so I imagine, especially in the college sports arena, it's it's very interesting and there's a lot of different layers to it. Yeah, no doubt. So college sports is a, is a small world, I would say, but there are several different constituencies. Um, oftentimes they have, you know, different interests, uh, different goals. And you see that kind of manifest itself when they want to reform rules. I mean, you have a lot of different groups that have their, for, for good reason, have their perspectives and they feel strongly about them. And building consensus can be challenging uh, at times. But I think, you know, that's, that's important by design. Yeah, I'm sure because there's that one constituency that really doesn't have a formal role, but the fan base, you know, where maybe in financial institutions, we all should pay more attention to their rule changes. Uh, but fans are very passionate and people on campus are very passionate about college sports. So I, I imagine it takes on a whole new life sometimes. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a sports fan in general, but I can say that college sports fans and the the loyalty and the love that, that folks have for their for their alma mater, for uh, the universities that are in their towns, uh, take on a different level of importance, I think, than maybe even, you know, other you know, pro sports or what have you might take on. No, I, I agree. I mean, I've seen people in a lot of snow tailgating before a football game. So, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so um, all right. Well, you made the switch uh, from the NCAA to firm life during a pandemic. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss the opportunity to kind of ask, like, how was it to change jobs and start at a new firm in the middle of all of this? Well, it, to be honest, it was pretty seamless. I had, you know, some nerves along the way, as as you might expect. I think, you know, for everyone, the, the past year, thirteen months has been life changing in a lot of ways, and and some anxious moments to be sure. But um, my transition from the NCA to the to the group, like I said, was pretty smooth. I've been very fortunate in that regard. Everyone at the office has been great and very welcoming, and I've also been able to hit the ground hit the ground running with some interesting projects that have kept me busy. So, you know, when you're going through transition, sometimes if you can immerse yourself in your work and just focus on that, it kind of helps uh, make the transition go a little smoother. And that's been my experience. So, I wish I had uh, you know more words of wisdom on changing jobs during a pandemic, but it really it really wasn't too difficult to be honest. Thankfully, that's great. I mean, I, it did probably help that you knew most of the practice group before you joined. Yes, yeah, I've known about Bond's Collegiate Sports Group for a while, going back to when I was you know still a student, and you know knew of Mike Glazier and, and Rick Everard's work. Okay. You know, living in Kansas City, you would you would see articles about them from time to time. 
Um, and I followed infractions cases just kind of as a, as a nerdy sports fan from afar. And I got to work with them uh, often when I was at the NCAA and always got along with them really well, everyone in the group, uh, even though we were on opposite ends of the table, so to speak, when I was at the NCAA and always respected how they went about their business. So when, when this opportunity to join them came around, I knew it was the right move. That's great. One thing that's a little bit different here is um, you actually are all together because typically this uh, practice group is on the road all of the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's typically a lot of travel. Um, we've traveled a little bit in the four or five months that I've been there, but nothing like what it is in a normal time. Yeah. So probably with the transition, it's you know a chance to actually get to know your colleagues a little bit, maybe a little more. Um, although being on the road with people does sort of um, help that dynamic as well when you're yeah. like, trapped at an airport for too many hours. Yeah, I have gotten to know them pretty well. Some of the folks that I, that I hadn't known previously. And yes, traveling with, with uh, colleagues uh, can be fun, but you also learn a lot about the other person when you're on the road with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You're like 13 hours in the Cleveland airport or whatever it might be. Well, so I know nothing sort of seems typical um, right now, but um, what types of questions or matters like might you work on at any given time? Like I said, our work primarily uh, focuses on advising uh, and representing the schools in NCAA compliance matters, eligibility matters, infractions matters. And um, that work has continued on and, and been mainly unfazed, I would say, by the pandemic, believe it or not. Um, at least that's been my experience in the in the time that I've been with the group. So we're busy day in, day out, you know, like I said, doing interviews, writing reports, consulting with the NCAA, trying to, you know, move our cases through the process uh, and, and giving our clients sound advice along the way. And I think, you know, that will continue on when things get back to normal. There may be more time on the road than we're uh, currently experiencing. But I don't know what the future holds in terms of the, the different types of cases that will come across our plate with some reforms to rules that could be coming. But I, I am confident that, that there will be rules and they, uh, schools will need representation uh, to help navigate those rules. So that's what I can foresee. Yeah. And so you said that just the division one rules are 400 pages, right? And That's then right. there's yeah. also division two and division three. And are there also rules um, by sport? Like, does it do like, or conference? Like, do we also deal with conferences sometimes and rules within other conferences? I'm going to say the Big East because that's an that's an old flashback for me. But um, are there you know are there conference rules that we also have to sometimes advise on, or is it typically NCAA focused? It's typically NCA focused, but you're right that um, conferences will often have their own bylaws and their own rules that their member institutions are bound by. And then to layer on top of that, you know, an institution may have its own internal policies and procedures that uh, will will come up in a, in a case that we may be working on. So, yeah, there's just like there's a lot of different constituencies that are implicated or involved in in infractions cases or NCA compliance work. There's several sets of rules that you have to kind of grapple with and, and pull together. So, yeah, you're dead on. So this whole the compliance piece of this and sort of using that mindset, understanding the rules and the guidance, it's just a, a huge part. You probably can, even though I know we always look things up, but you can probably recite some of this in your sleep. 
yeah, maybe some some of the main ones I can, but I do. I I, I have the manual at the ready at all times. That's kind of a that's kind of a staple for fo- for folks who work in this uh, in this industry. Is it tabbed? Um, <laughs> well, the one I'm using right now is uh, a PDF version, and I've got it bookmarked. Okay. So yeah, it's it's uh, electronically tabbed. Yes, okay, because <laughs> it just has to be right. That's what we do. We yeah. <laughs> So you you kind of hinted to this a little bit beyond the pandemic. There's a lot more on the horizon for college sports. I don't want to go too far down the road on this because I need to save things for future podcast episodes. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, if if there's a couple of things that you think might be coming up in the next 18 months or so that might be um, interesting for uh, listeners to kind of keep an ear out for. Sure. Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. The first is name, image, and likeness. Uh, We're seeing states throughout the country pass legislation that would, you know, free up student athletes to take advantage of, of you know, opportunities out there. The NCAA, I think, is is working through that process as well, trying to come up with uh, legislation that makes sense. So that will be a topic for sure uh, in the industry for the next 18 months or so. Gender equity is another one. I think you saw some discussion of that this past March. And another one I think is, even though this has been in the news for some time, is allowing student athletes, regardless of which sport they play, to be able to transfer at least one time and play immediately. So for the longest time, there, there were um, kind of a different set of rules, you know, for, for basketball players or football right. players uh, compared to other uh, student athletes who play other sports. And I think they're trying to create some uniformity to those rules and, um, give some flexibility to the student athletes there. So you've seen some, you've seen that in the news recently and seen the impact of that, but certainly uh, rosters in certain sports will see, I think, significant changeover from one year to the next. And that's something that'll definitely um, people will be tracking on and, and, and keeping watch over. So, and you never know what else tomorrow may bring. I mean, the one constant in life is change and college sports is certainly no different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just making me think that um, basketball players, men's and women's, they just got an extra year of eligibility because of COVID, mm-hmm. right? So that's a, that's going to be interesting to it's watch. A free year. Yeah, free year. And that's not something we usually see in college sports. And here in Syracuse, New York at Syracuse University, that means we'll have a lot of Bayheims um, hanging out at <laughs> our basketball team. <laughs> So, um, but it, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts the freshmen and playtime and everything going forward. So it's always fun, always fun. So uh, um, as you mentioned, there's um, change is the one constant that we all have, but I think it would be interesting for listeners, if you wouldn't mind just giving us kind of a general life cycle of um, fraction or investigation case that you would deal with. Sure. I'll, I'll do my best. So really a case starts with a report of a violation or a potential violation. And that report can come in, you know, any number of ways. Sometimes a member institution learns of something going on potentially on their campus. Uh, sometimes, you know, it, it may be discovered through a media report. The NCAA enforcement staff also will pass along information to a school if it, if it learns of something. So uh, regardless of how the report comes in, that's, that's essentially the, the start of a case, if you will. And um, from there, if there's merit to the, to the report, to the accusation, an investigation will be conducted. 
the, the NCAA fractions process is designed to be collaborative between the NCAA and the school that's uh, subject to the inquiry. Because right. it it's a member, that right? Way. The school's a member. That's right. It's yeah. it's a it's a membership organization. It's meant to it's meant to be kind of self policing, if you will. So the enforcement staff and the institution typically will work together on on doing the fact gathering. So when I talked earlier about doing interviews and writing reports, et cetera, that's kind of what I was getting at. And um, investigations can take you know varying amounts of time depending on the you know the scope of the issues. And once that investigative phase is complete, there are rules that obligate the school to, if there, if there are violations, they have to essentially self-report them to the NCAA. And if, if that were to come to pass, depending on the severity of the issues, the, the case could be processed relatively quickly uh, by the enforcement staff. If it's something, level three is the, is the term of art that we use, but something relatively minor in severity can be processed just by the NCAA. And that happens typically. You may see news reports of schools, you know, such and such school processed a handful of, of secondary or level three violations. Um, if it's something more, more serious, it takes a different path to be to be adjudicated. And um, it's all, you know, meant to be self-contained within the NCA process. Uh, there are certain bylaws that kind of govern, you know, the timing of the briefs that get submitted back and forth. And ultimately, there is a, a committee that that hears the case, that takes up the case, and renders a decision on penalties. A typical life cycle of a case, uh, if it goes, you know, the, the route of the of the committee on infractions, will be probably upwards of a year. Some cases take longer than that. Some some take shorter. But because of the the legislative requirements alone, you're looking at at least six months of kind of back and forth between the enforcement staff and the parties on briefing the case and prepping it for the COI. Okay. Uh, and then there's a, a relatively new process that was implemented a few years ago called the Independent Accountability Resolution Process. I believe they have that right, IARP for short. And that came in the wake of the um, college basketball corruption scandal and right. a commission was put together and they created uh, this new process that is meant to be kind of independent of the NCAA. So that has its whole, uh, you know, kind of a whole separate set of, of, of issues to deal with. Um, it's relatively new. No case has actually gone completely through that process yet. Interesting. Um, so that is kind of a, a different track that cases can take. So say there were a bunch of level threes, you know, something minor or something more serious. Um, potentially, would you advise clients on like how to correct going forward? Yes, uh, I think we would. Uh, that's one of the expectations the NCA has is when the school learns of an issue that not only does it do what it can to to investigate and report the issue, but also implement, you know, corrective measures, process improvements, what have you to, to see to it that similar things don't happen in the future. So, yeah, that's something that we will get involved in. There's a lot of different uh, kind of ripple effects to an infractions case, as you can imagine, and that's certainly one of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I spent a dozen or so years looking at the Carrier Dome on Syracuse University's campus and advising students who love sports law, and you made a practice area change. So would you mind giving – what like what advice would you give a young lawyer or law student or potential law student about working in college sports law? Uh, that's a great question. The best advice I could give someone – who is thinking about getting into this line of work is to start laying the groundwork now. 
college athletics is a is a small world as i mentioned your your success and you know your opportunities will will largely be driven by not only you know the, the quality of your work obviously but the relationships that you can build and maintain uh, along the way so the sooner you can start building those relationships and making those connections the better uh, there are several professional associations you can get involved with the NCAA itself at the national office has a has a great uh, postgraduate internship program and um, I think they also have externship um, opportunities as well a lot of schools have opportunities for students and maybe even younger professionals and their in their athletics departments to help them get started in the industry if it were me and if I was in school uh, I would look at whether my school has an athletics program and just I would reach out to folks in administration there set up informational interviews been my experience that people in this industry are very, very willing to help others and, and mentor others. Um, that was certainly my experience. And even if you're out of school uh, and don't have any connections in the industry, which was my situation a dozen or so years ago, still reach out to folks in the industry and, and begin building relationships. You know, I've had a lot of great people help me along the way, and I'm more than happy to pay it forward. So they're welcome to reach out to me as well. That's great. That's great. You know, it's funny. I was, um, yes, I do research before these and I was checking your LinkedIn and I was like, the people we have in common are um, friends of mine who did something similar to what you did. They had practiced a different type of law and then they went back and did the interning and volunteering. So when I asked for the um, advice for new lawyers, um, I think your advice also holds true for experienced attorneys who want to make a change as well. Um, yep. Yeah, that never ex- too late. Never too late. Yeah, the ex- when I was overseeing the externship program, the one in the um, NCAA compl- in the compliance office at Syracuse University was the hot ticket um, that people definitely wanted to. But it was a great experience. You know, they learned what was really going on. So, um, yeah. well, well, thank you, Mike. It's a great conversation and timely that we are sort of wrapping up the spring academic semester and seasons and hopefully starting to already get ready for the fall sports season, maybe a bit more normal. Um, so thanks for taking the time to talk. Yeah, I hope so. Hopefully we're all going to be back watching games in person. I know everyone listening is all about that college football, so we have to make sure we uh, get ready for that. Um, and I'll be watching college soccer and field hockey because I'm that nerd, so that's okay. But I truly appreciate your insights and I'm um, looking forward to getting out to Overland Park to meet you all in person. So thanks again, Mike. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Legally Bond. If you are listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone from the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.